with you this morning. If it's your first time with us, my name is Landon, and I'm the, the pastor here at Restoration Church. Uh, we're actually closing uh, a series uh, kind of on vision through 2020 this morning, and so it'll be our fifth or sixth week, and we'll be spending time in what's called the Sermon on the Mount in between Matthew's, or Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5 in just a minute. Before that, though, uh, just two announcements for you. First, we're going to be having a worship night on March 5th, uh, Thursday at 6 p.m. Thursday, March 5th at 6 p.m. So about a week and a half away. Uh, both gatherings will be together, which is always fun to, to have one uh, gathering. And yeah, we're just really looking forward to in the midst of just the rhythms, the patterns, the grind of our lives to stop and pause, to come together and to give credit where credit is due and to, to worship our Savior. So Thursday, uh, March 5th at 6 p.m., we'd love for you to join us for that. Secondly, uh, this, well, after this gathering in the studio, Whitney is having a, a training and an orientation type of thing for our kids volunteers. So if you're a member of the Our Kids team, you've probably already heard of that and uh, RSVP'd. But if you've maybe been somebody that's interested or thought about serving in kids, uh, Whitney would love to provide you lunch and uh, for you to get to know the team and spend some time with them. There's no obligation to, to serve after that, but it would be a great opportunity for you to just meet some of the people and hear about how that team is serving our kids week after week. And so that will be in the studio. You can either, well, the best way would actually be to walk out these doors and then walk in through the glass uh, garage door from the outside. So we'd love to have you join us for that. With that said, I'm going to start a timer and we'll dive into... Uh, to the book of Matthew. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus concludes this sermon called the, the Sermon on the Mount or often referred to as that. And I'm actually going to read his conclusion to the sermon before we read the introduction. It's probably, probably the longest sermon Jesus gives. And here's how he ends it. He says this, therefore, meaning in light of what he just said, the whole sermon, which is really saying, here's how to live life. Here's how to have, have marriages and, and handle your children and your business and death and life. And pretty much everything is what's covered in the Sermon on, on the Mount. And Jesus says, because of what I just said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. And so in this place, geographical location where, where Jesus is giving this sermon, there were seasonal rains and storms of this variety. So he's not saying generically when this will happen or sometime, someday if it will. He's saying this will happen. The rains come, the winds blow, the storm happens and flooding will arrive. Basically what he's saying is in life we face brokenness and seasons that come in different waves. We all know that. He says... For the man who built his house on the rock, his house did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Again, life happens. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was great. When Jesus had finished the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Maybe that's the, the first time you've heard Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount and this parable. Or, or maybe you've heard it many different times. I'm, I'm curious though, 
whose house, whose life you're picturing as I read those words that Jesus spoke. My guess is, if you're like me until this morning, as I've heard that before, I'm processing my own house and my own life. Is my own house and my own life built on the, the rock and the foundation of Jesus and therefore safe and secure? Or is my own house and my own life built on the sand and it will collapse greatly? That's how I often, actually always, until probably this morning, have processed this, this passage, Jesus' words. But, but today as we dive more deeply into the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to take a different perspective. We're going to take a different perspective together. I want you to process this flooding, life, the storms, the wind, the seasons when this happens. And the, the one of two ways that it can go, either it being safe and secure built on the rock or it will collapse on the sand. Not from the perspective of your house and your life, but of your loved ones, of those you care for and worry about. So we're not going to think about our own lives, but those of others. And so if we, we do that, what we recognize is that for those we care about, those we love, life is going to happen. They're, they're going to face trials and, and tribulations and brokenness. The seasonal winds and rain and flooding will pound them. That's just the reality of what life looks like. And for them, one of two things will happen. For all of those you love and care about, whether that's a friend, a family member, whoever it is, either their house, their life will be built on the foundation of Jesus and it will be okay. Actually, it'll be good. Or it'll collapse and it will collapse greatly. Now, I'm curious as you woke up this morning and, and lifted your head from the pillow and apparently drove or walked here and walked in through those doors and, and as you're sitting now, if you're like me, your mind is probably wandering. And I, I wonder what the like, gravitational pull of that wandering takes you to. Who or, or what are you worried about or concerned with, focused on, what things are on the to-do list? Who is it that you care for or, or maybe are praying for? Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's an aging parent. Maybe it's some, some loved one or a coworker or a friend or a family member. But like this morning, who's on your mind? What are they concerned with? What are they lacking or missing? What are they hungering and thirsting for? What do they need peace from? What is God doing in the midst of their lives? It's with you and, and, and those people that you love in mind that, that Jesus writes these words to introduce his sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, we read this. When, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The poor in spirit are blessed. I think the, the Beatitudes, which is what this, this list of verses is often referred to as, is one of the hardest to understand. The poor in spirit are blessed. What does that mean? I think maybe one of the best ways to understand it is to, to recognize that each and every one of us and the people Jesus was speaking to are actually in this, this wrestling match, in this fight with Jesus. We're all actually fighting against Jesus because Jesus is sitting on the throne with his crown ruling over the world. And oftentimes we don't like the job that he's doing. And so we go, hey, Jesus, you're, you're kind of doing okay as king, but I want to be king. We're fighting for that throne. 
And so the poor in spirit are the ones that have finally been through enough in life that they go, you know what, I would not be a good king. And I actually need Jesus and I'm dependent on him. And so we bow down and we worship and we sing praises and say, Jesus, you alone are the good king. And I submit to you because you are good and faithful and loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving. Those are the poor in spirit. They're no longer in the fight. They're not trying to be in control. They're poor in spirit because they've surrendered to the only one who we can actually surrender to and trust. The poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The next line is pretty confusing too. Those who mourn are blessed. That doesn't make much sense. Those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. I talk frequently about what I refer to as the why God moments in life where, you, where something happens and you go, God, why? Why would you allow this to happen? How could a good or loving or faithful or gracious or merciful or comforting God do this or allow this? Or maybe for you it's not as much of an, a why God question. Maybe it's more of an if God. If, if you are actually real, if you are actually there and listen and care God, then how could you let this happen? How could you do this? And we doubt and we question and we wonder. And they're valid questions. They're not bad. God doesn't mind us actually asking those questions. What I think we oftentimes don't realize is that because we are so stupidly stubborn and, and, and thick and we keep going and going and striving and striving to be in control and this fight with Jesus trying to be king, trying to be in control and be our own God, that sometimes the most loving thing Sometimes the most loving thing that Jesus can do for us is to let us go through really hard things. Because it's only when the really hard things happen that we finally say enough is enough. I can't do it anymore and Jesus, I need you. And that's the only way we experience life as it was meant to be. Sometimes the, the gifts that we need to be given we can't actually reach out and grab because we would never grab that gift for ourselves because we don't want hardship Sometimes Jesus gives us hardship and brokenness and the seasonal brokenness in the world so that we'll depend on him because we need him desperately. So the poor in spirit are blessed. You can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, if you're fighting with the king. It just doesn't make sense. There can't be two kings. There's only one and his name is Jesus and you're fighting against him. That's not going to work. The poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs because they've bowed down to and worshipped Jesus, who is the only good king. Those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. By whom? By Jesus. As we read the rest of, of the next five verses, listen to the tenses of the verbs. Some are in the present tense and some are in the future. The poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, as in now. Those who mourn are, are blessed for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will, future tense, inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be, future tense, uh, shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God has said those are blessed now and 
they will be given everything they need. I, I think of it almost as if you're waiting for somebody who's on a plane to arrive at the airport. They've already taken off. The flight is in motion. They are flying, but they will be landing soon. It's a difference. That's what Jesus is saying. You are blessed if you are bowing down and worshiping him as king. And there's a future. You will be. You will have everything you need when Jesus reigns as king. But the time is not fully here yet. What Jesus says next is interesting. Let's look at verse 13. After he says, these are the people that are blessed, he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I want to connect the three different parts of the same sermon that we've talked about this morning. So the first thing we read is that life is going to happen. Brokenness will be experienced. The seasons come and go. And one of two things is going to happen to everybody. Either your house, your life, and we're thinking about others. So the lives of those we love. Their worlds will be built on the foundation of Jesus and they will be safe and secure and provided for. It will be good. Or they will build their life on a different foundation. Any other foundation other than the name of Jesus. Any other name, any other way of life. And Jesus says there will be a collapse and the collapse will be great. He says some, those who are following Jesus are already blessed. And they will have everything they need. And then he says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Here's what Jesus is saying. By the way, his disciples, his apprentices, Christ followers, you and me, the followers of Jesus, live and act and, and love and speak and journey through the everyday stuff of our lives. People are going to look at you as a quote-unquote Christian. And that is actually going to influence whether or not they build their house on the rock that is the name and person of Jesus or they build their life on the sand which will indeed collapse. Think about the significance of that for a second. Your loved ones, their perception of who Jesus is, whether or not their life experiences collapse or safety and security in Christ is actually dependent on one another. The, the people you love and care about, the ones that you are concerned for this morning, they're, they're not fully in their own hands. They're not fully in your hands. Actually, Jesus has entrusted his, them to his church. By the way, we as the church, followers of Jesus, and the everyday stuff of life live. People are going to make a choice of which foundation to build their life on. My children are going to make a choice about who Jesus is and whether or not he's worthy of following, not just based on me or them, but based on you, based on the world of Christ followers around us. They will look at the projection of Jesus that people make and the everyday stuff of life and say, yes, it makes sense to build my life all around, totally, completely around Jesus. Or they'll say, no, I grew up in the church, it's ugly. And they're going to run fast and far away from Jesus and want nothing to do with him because of how people portrayed him. That's pretty significant. 
we have quite the responsibility before us. I've used the, the metaphor throughout this series of, of a movie preview. If you go to the movies and you actually show up on time or early, I've not done that in a very long time, you get to watch the previews or have to watch the previews depending, depending on your perspective. And there's probably, I don't know, five to ten. And some of them are really good and you go, you know what, I want to come back and eat popcorn and drink my soda and do whatever and watch that movie because it looks good. I want to participate. And some you go, that just looks horrible and awful. I want nothing to do with it. Simply put, that's what our lives, that's the kind of impact that our lives will have on the world. They'll look at our lives and say, hey, they're saying this is what life with Jesus looks like. It looks good. They'll say, oh, that's what life with Jesus looks like. I want nothing to do with it. That's a big responsibility. You and I as the church, as followers of Jesus, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The light part of this passage is pretty simple and makes sense to me. For the longest time, the salt component is just confusing. And I think the reason is because there's a pretty significant cultural gap from how we utilize salt today in our modern world compared to how salt was utilized at Jesus' time and even more so when the Old Testament was written thousands of years before. I want to talk, we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time talking about the use of salt so we can actually understand what Jesus is saying here. You are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? We're going to talk about four primary uses of salt. The first is as a preservative. It preserves food. The second is as a purifier. And this is actually in the context of, of religious and spiritual sacrifices and offerings. The third is as an enhancer. And the fourth is as a destroyer. Salt was actually used to destroy land. First, we'll talk about salt as a preserver, though. Like salt, we as the church are supposed to preserve what is good in the world. As we, we journey through the everyday, through the broken and beautiful, we're supposed to see what is good, what is right, what is whole, what is a part of what God intended for us to experience in life, to grab a hold of it, to protect it, to value it, and to care for it. I think of a family unit. The statistics are crazy of what happens in children when the family unit holds together versus when it doesn't. Sometimes it's in our control and sometimes it's not. But the reality is that the family unit is good and whole and right in God's intent. And so we're supposed to value it, to protect it, to fight for it, to care for it. Human dignity in all forms is something to value, to protect, to fight for. One of the, the very first commands that God gives before sin even enters the world is to cultivate, to make something good out of this world. So business, art, industry, pioneering technologies, innovation, collaboration with diverse people groups, and the world becoming better and better is good. We're supposed to preserve, fight for, protect, and value these things. By what we preserve, value, and protect, the world will glimpse the kingdom of Jesus. They'll see the things we fight for, 
and value, and they'll understand that those are things that will be a part of Jesus' reign on earth. I shared a couple stories from this book called A Creative Minority uh, last week. I, I read this book a few weeks ago. And in it, there's a story of, of a woman named Sarah Miller who uh, moved to New York to study theater uh, around 18. And, and during her sophomore year at NYU, she uh, started going to church and, and doing the Christian thing. So she's going to church services and singing worship songs and going to Bible studies and all this stuff. Maybe like you're doing today. But then she did this crazy thing and she started to, to read the scriptures and she asked the question. She was actually reading in Matthew. I don't know this, but I would not be surprised if it was the Sermon on the Mount. And she started to ask her friend and herself, what would happen if we actually like listened to this and took Jesus seriously and at his word and embraced it because it felt like she wasn't. She was going to church and singing the songs and doing the things that we do but something didn't seem whole and right. And so she started actually using whatever free time she had to, to go just be with people and the homeless and, and eat lunch with them. And that still wasn't good enough for her. There was still something missing. And so eventually, through, through prayer and decision, and in spite of what everyone else told her, her and her friend decided that they needed to move to the poorest neighborhood that they could find in their city and I, I want to read to you a, a little part of this. We read this. The biggest obstacle to them initially was that everyone, from the police to their Christian community, said they were crazy to move. The cops told them their neighborhood was a war zone and they should leave. Sarah talks about sitting on her stoop one night and watching families walk home. And here are her thoughts. I thought to myself, who is fearing for these kids? As long as they're forced to walk home on these streets, I will too. As we began to focus on being present in the neighborhood, we realized that the people that we were supposed to be afraid of greeted us by name and gave us huge hugs as we walked by. Before long, kids were hanging at our house until midnight and asking for food. We realized that no one was taking care of them. Most of them lived with one guardian who was either strung out on drugs or worked three jobs. So we started giving them after-school snacks, helping them with their homework, feeding them dinner, and putting them to bed in their own, own homes every night. All of this was happening while I had a full-time job that I not only loved, but I found myself with a huge amount of power, influence, and wealth within the company. I was working 80 hours a week, so I had less and less time to read Bible stories to the kids or be there for my neighbor when she was diagnosed with AIDS. I had to make a choice. After wrestling for months, I decided to quit my job and raise support so I could give all my energy to being a part of God's renewal in my neighborhood. I didn't know where the money was going to come from, but I had faith because I knew I was in the center of God's kingdom becoming a reality on earth. The poorest neighborhood in America is in the most powerful city on earth. As the people of God, we are called to steward our privilege on behalf of the poor in our city. What an honor that God uses our small acts of obedience to bring his kingdom in forgotten neighborhoods. Now, not all of us, not many of us, are called to leave our jobs, to leave our homes, and to move. Because if we all did that, we couldn't support people like Sarah. But every single one of us is called to embrace following Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. To be intentional with our eyes, ears, and heart to see, hear, and feel 
what Jesus wants us to see, hear, and feel, to be compassionate and gracious and merciful, faithful, forgiving, and loving. To know that our number one job, no matter what your vocation is, is to love and reflect who Jesus is to the people and the everyday stuff of your life. By what we preserve, value, and protect, the world will glimpse the kingdom of Jesus. The second thing that salt does is it it functions as a purifier. I want to read from Leviticus 2.13. I think it will help paint this picture. We read that you are to season. God is giving commands uh, about how to embrace these, these rituals, these offerings and sacrifices. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. And then in 2 Kings, we read uh, something similar that describes the purity that salt was to bring. Elisha, one of the prophets, went out to the spring of water, threw salt in it, and said, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. No longer will death or unfruitfulness result from it. So in, in religion and spirituality, God used salt as something to include with offerings and sacrifices to bring purity. Like salt was used in these rituals, the church is to purify and redeem what has been distorted and broken and bent in this world. There there are many things in our world and the everyday stuff of our lives that have been distorted, that have been bent and broken and twisted, just like the, the airplane analogy I used earlier. They're good things that have been distorted and bent and are now bad things. Good things God gifted that in human sinful hands have been used in horrible ways. I think one of the most obvious examples of this is actually sex. Sex is given by God to a husband and wife in the context of marriage. That's to unify and be a gift drawing them and and founding them to, to be together as one. And it also potentially produces children. It's this gift from God to those who are married. Yet sex simultaneously is one of the most horrendous, abusive, destructive things in our entire world. In the context of pornography and and sex slavery and sex trafficking and sexual abuse, sex is one of the most defeating, debilitating, destructive things in our entire world. It's a good gift from God that has been bent and distorted. And what we are called to do as the church is to see that and not to save the world, but to help bring a purifying sense to say, what is God's intent with this good thing? Another example is loans, the lending of money. What might have started as a a generous offer can actually end up being really harmful to people. It's fascinating. You might not know that there's all kinds of laws and rules and instruction on lending and loans throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. And, And in our current marketplace with our economics and capitalism, loans are some of the ways that the greatest harm is done to people because there's these absurd interest rates that people buy into and the debt amasses and grows and people can't ever get out of it. And so they're captive to it or to the institution or person that the loan is attached to and it's devastating. It's a good thing. Probably started with generosity. Here you go, borrow this. And then as interest accumulates and we get greedy and selfish and try to play the role of king, something good becomes something distorted and devastating. Lying, cheating, stealing, suing, 
Those are all, all things that have been distortions good. And we as the church are supposed to be in the business of helping to purify humbly, graciously, recognizing that we ourselves are distorted, broken, and bent, but to help redeem what has been lost. By what we purify and redeem from being bent, that we deem worthy of fixing, people will will receive a glimpse, a preview of the reign of Jesus from that. The, The next thing that salt does is it enhances. This is the most obvious to us. It provides flavor. Like salt enhances the flavor of a good meal, the church should enhance the good and the beauty in this world. We should make it even better. Unfortunately, Christian, the word Christian, when used as a descriptor of a product or a person or a thing, is usually not synonymous with excellence or high quality. If you put the word Christian before a product, whatever it's be, whatever it be, shirts, music, coffee, anything, probably means it's not a good quality. Like you don't mark it with that. Like, hey, we just opened up a really cool new Christian whatever. You go, I don't want to go to that. I mean, process that for a second. Christian is not known as, as good quality of excellence. And, and so what naturally is going to happen is people are going to think of the Christ, right? That's where we get Christian and go, it's not going to be very good. The food, the food in heaven when Jesus reigns as king is probably going to be pretty bad. The service is probably not very good. The music's awful. Whatever you come up with, people don't want to be a part of the reign of Jesus because of the preview that we give. To be an effective preview, Christians should be associated with excellence and quality. People should want Christians shopping in their stores. People who are employers should want to employ Christians because they do the best work. Should want to hire Christian accountants and lawyers and teachers and chefs and whatever vocations there are. Like, Christians should be a mark that means it's going to be good because the kingdom of Jesus is going to be really good. But I think we all know that that's not what people think because it's not what they've experienced which means we're sending people running the opposite way of Jesus. This is why the everyday stuff of life matters greatly. One one of the most harmful things that has happened to to Christianity and to Christians, and therefore to the world, is that, uh, I don't know when it was exactly, but we came up with this statement, Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And, And what that meant is that Jesus was relegated to the private sphere of life. You get to make your own cool personal decision about Jesus and keep it to yourself and keep it quiet. Like, Jesus never had anything to do with that. That is something Jesus would have never, ever said. He proclaimed himself as king in a public realm, that he would reign and make life what it was meant to be for everybody. It has nothing to do with us as individuals privately accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Does he love and care for individuals and did he save them? Yes. But it's called to be in the midst of the public, everyday stuff of life. And so when there's this disconnect and we go, hey, yeah, me and Jesus are good. I've got a cool devotional time. And I do, this, I, I do this thing called church on Sundays and we sing songs. It's great. And then you go and you're a lazy employee that gets fired. And you have the, the label of Christ. Go, I don't want anything to do with the kingdom of Christ. Or if your employer who claims Christ is a jerk or not generous and doesn't take good care of his employees, you go, well, that's probably what Jesus is like, right? I don't want anything to do with him. And it has a pretty significant impact. 
salt is to enhance. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. The last thing that we're going to talk about this morning that salt does is it destroys. In the ancient world, when two nations would, would fight and one would overtake the other, after the fight was over, the victorious nation would spread salt all over the land so that no vegetation could grow, so that there could be no life. Not only did they destroy in that moment, but it would continue for years and years and years in a devastating way. Unfortunately, that's been true for the church often. Our saltiness has actually been destructive, not preserving, purifying, or enhancing. It comes back to the, the good movie preview or bad movie preview mentality. I'm going to give you two pretty polarizing examples of, of how this works. The first is in our, just in our country's history, the, the facts of our country's history, that as our, our country was founded, slavery was a reality. Most of the slave owners proclaimed themselves as followers of Jesus, as Christians. And as they abused, raped, pillaged, plundered, did whatever they wanted with these slaves who they did not treat as humans, you know what they would do in the name of Jesus? They'd say, hey, here's a Bible. Because you, 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 you need to know God. Except they wouldn't give them a normal Bible. They would edit the Bible first to make sure that any instances, any notes of freedom and love and faithfulness would be omitted so that the slaves wouldn't get any bad ideas to not become slaves. And I want you to just stop and think about that for a second with me. Like there have been and there are horrendous things done in the name of Jesus. No wonder people often want nothing to do with him and instead run in fear the other way because Jesus seems terrible. And you might think, well, that was a long time ago. No, that's still a reality in many ways in our lives. Now let's use something that will probably hit your wallet today. Of all people, who do you think are known as the worst tippers in our culture? It sounds funny. But, like, as a matter of fact, I know, like, Christians are known as the worst tippers here in Prescott. That might seem subtle and insignificant. What does that communicate? Christians are greedy. Christians are selfish. Christians surely aren't generous. Christians don't care about others. Jesus is greedy. Jesus is selfish. Jesus surely doesn't care about others. I mean, that's a pretty natural progression, right? We might think that these things in the everyday stuff of our lives don't matter, but they matter pretty significantly. I think Christians are known as some of the most uptight people. Killers of joy, you might say. Like Depending on your background, we can't dance, sing, have fun, drink. Sex is awful until marriage and somehow it's supposed to be good. Like It just doesn't make sense, these things we do as Christians. But after all, like on the fifth or sixth day of the wedding feast that Jesus was at, he made the best wine. And he said, here you go, enjoy it. Like that's who Jesus is. One of the most common pictures that Jesus gives of the kingdom of heaven, meaning of how life will look, of what it will be like when he reigns as king on earth, is a wedding feast. 
And it will be good and delicious and spectacular and the best party you've ever been to. Like, is that what people think about when they think of Christians? No. They think boring, judgmental, hypocritical. And we wonder why people don't want anything to do with our Christ. It's pretty obvious. How about stress and anxiety? Christians are often known as some of the most anxious people. And I'm not talking about like when something in life happens and you're worried or you're anxious. That's okay. That's acute. That's in a moment. I'm talking about chronic anxiety. If over a sustained period of time, nothing changes and you're anxious, and it's so evident, you go, what about that peace Jesus said he offered that's different than any other peace? Jesus' people are always anxious. I don't think I want to be in his kingdom filled with anxiety. That doesn't sound too good. We might not take the freedom out of Bibles, but we've done a lot for God's people to run far and fast away from Jesus. We started this morning talking about the flooding, the storms of life that will happen. It's not a matter of if, just seasonal, it does. And I asked you to process, like, who are your loved ones? Is their house built on the rock? the name of Jesus, where they're safe and secure forever, where it will be good, where there will be the best parties, everlasting, and we get to do life together and build and grow and have relationship, or will they build their house, their life, their home on the foundation of sand that might look good, it might look like a beach, the beautiful ocean view, but it will get wiped away, and its collapse will be great at some point. Now here's the thing. Their future is not fully in their hands. Their decision is not fully in your hands. It actually, because Jesus has done this, has chosen the church to be his light, to be his salt. It's actually partially in the hands of the church, of the Christians, of the Christ followers, to be an effective preview of the reign of Jesus. And so I, I kind of plead with you this morning because I care about my children and other loved ones. I can't help. I can only do what I can do. But if they go in the world and they see Christians do this and this and not this and this, they will run from Jesus fast. That's terrifying. And so I beg you, I plead with you for my sake, for my kids' sake, for the sake of the people who have loved ones in this room to take this job seriously. Because the floods will come. The wind will blow. And many houses will collapse if they're not built on the name of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. Not so that they can see your good works and think you're a good person. Not so that you can earn Jesus' love. That's already happened. But because we know he's the good king, we practice his way of life to be an effective preview of the reign of Jesus. So that people will say, Jesus, I submit and surrender because I need you and you are good. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the good and wonderful and mighty God that you are. 
God, as I, I prayed this morning, as Nate has prayed, I ask that you would uh, just overwhelm us with your love and your goodness. Though it actually will probably be scary and costly and we might not want to do it. God, I pray for each person in this room that your spirit would give us eyes to see what you want us to see. And ears to hear what you want us to hear. Hearts to feel what you want us to feel, God. May we be concerned with what you're concerned with. And may the rest just fall away. Not because it doesn't matter, it does. Our concerns matter. But Father, because you are good and faithful. And we can trust that you have us in your perfect loving hands with arms wide open. May you move in us. May we be a church that helps the world around us imagine your kingdom. Because it is going to be so good. But your name has often been given a bad name. May you lead us as we seek to be an effective preview of who you are. In the name of Jesus we ask, amen. That may sound a little overwhelming and like a big responsibility. Hopefully it does. The, the good news though is that Jesus is actually the one leading this effort in us. And this is why we take communion every week and we take the bread and we dip it into the cup remembering his body and his blood that he died, but that he rose again, and that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is actually in you, and the Spirit is leading you to be the preview. All we have to do is be poor in spirit. Say, Jesus, my life, my hands, my finances, my time, my gifting, my everything, not my some things, my everything is yours. As we take communion, we recognize he is with us and for us, and he's going to lead you in. And so during the next few minutes, feel free to, to walk up. If you're a follower of Christ, take the bread and the cup, whether individually or as a community, and know that he's with you. We also give in our response. And so as you walk out of these doors after we finish this last song, giving is one of the ways that we, we surrender, that we're poor in spirit, that we say all of ours is yours, Jesus. And so there's two boxes for giving in the, the back of the room where there's instructions on how you can give online if you'd like to do that. But giving is a form of our worship. Let's continue to, to worship now in our response. <laughs>